I got out of bed this morning because I wanted something. I wanted to watch the sun rise, or kind of rise-ish, over a cup of Kenyan. I wanted a little time alone in the quiet with God before the three-headed chaos monster of Jude, Moses, and Sunday was out of its lair. God bless them. I wanted to be with you and recenter my mind and body on the reality of Jesus and talk about the Sabbath, one of my all-time favorite practices from the way of Jesus. And as weird as it sounds, this is actually my job, and Sunday is my Monday, I wanted to work. I wanted to contribute to human flourishing in my own small way, and I wanted to make a little money to pay for dinner tonight for my children and myself and Tammy. My point is, <laughs> my point is, I woke up with all sorts of desires, and those desires are what got me out of bed on a stormy, dark winter's morning. Desire is a great motivator. It is essentially the engine of our life. Its function is to get us up out of bed in the morning and propel us out into the world. But if at any point Desire is no longer under our control. We're not at the steering wheel anymore. And instead, it is driving our life. At that point, we're in trouble. Because when you take a closer look at the dynamics of desire, you realize really fast, and you don't need a degree in philosophy to figure this out, that desire is one of those things that is never, ever satisfied. As far back as 1000 BC, the Koheleth of Ecclesiastes said, quote, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. A more recent poet just said, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> Same idea. Thomas Aquinas, which is a name that most of us recognize but have not actually read, 13th century Italian, one of the minds that really gave shape to Western civilization as we know it was also a priest, founder of scholasticism. He was an academic kind of heady brain, and he once asked the question, what would it take to satisfy human desire? What would it take to ever feel like, ah, I'm satisfied, I have enough? And the answer he came up with was everything. We would have to experience everything and everybody, and he said, be experienced by everything and everybody in order to ever feel satisfied. We would have to eat at every single restaurant in the city. That's 25 years of your life just for Portland, right? <laughs> have every experience, travel to every country, every city, every natural wonder of the world, have every experience, every sexual partner, every accomplishment, every accumulation. We would have to experience the universe itself in order to ever feel satisfied. Carl Rayner, one of the most important Catholic theologians of the 20th century, once put it this way, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we learn that ultimately in this world there is no finished symphony. I love his word picture of an unfinished symphony, or for those of us who are a little bit more lowbrow, like a Chance the Rapper song before you get to the end or something. It's that feeling of when you're right near the end of the song and it's cut off. Da 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 da, the fifth. Ah, that feeling is the human condition. We live with this, in his language, turmoil of, man, I just, I'm almost there. I'm almost 
at rest. I just need a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, a little bit more of her, him, this, that, the other. It's the unfinished symphony. Now, what all of these bright minds are tapping into is the reality that desire is infinite, meaning it has no limit. There's no point at which desire is ever satisfied. And because we are finite, right, we inhabit time and space. I mean, one body, one gender, one marriage, one city, one job, one family, one life, one story. Because we are finite, the end result is restlessness. We live with a chronic state of unsatisfied desire, like an itch that just no matter how often you scratch it, it just does not go away. The question then becomes, whether you are an apprentice of Jesus or just a human being who is smart and wise, the question becomes, how do we live with this restlessness? How do we live with all of this pent-up unsatisfied desire. What do we do with it? If to satisfy your desire is not an option, okay, that means at some point you have to take some kind of a stand against desire. Now, how do you live with that? And of course, there are all sorts of answers to that question. There are entire religions and wisdom traditions such as Buddhism that have grown up around that question. What Jesus in his way would offer as an answer to that question is Listen, basically, human desire is infinite. If you were a Christian philosopher and this was like your niche, you would say this. Human desire is infinite because we were made to live with God forever in his world and nothing less than that will ever satisfy us. So our only hope, whereas, say, Buddhism would say detach from your desire and Portland would basically say eat out a lot or whatever and make sure you're on Tinda, just chase after your desire— What Jesus would say is, listen, put your desire in its proper place on God. And all your other desires, put them in their proper place below God, where you know, doesn't mean you don't want them, but you no longer need whatever it is, marriage or the job or the new apartment, in order to live a happy life. One of the most famous lines of the way of Jesus post the New Testament is from a 4th century African, who ironically was one of the minds that gave shape to Western civilization as we know it, Augustine, bishop from northern Africa. He said this, you have made, in his book Confessions, writing at the fall of the Roman Empire, he said, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. More recently, Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher, put it this way, desire is infinite, partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who's infinite, eternal, and able to supply our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. The default setting of the human condition post-Eden is not atheism, but idolatry. It is to aim our desire not at God, but at whatever your desire of choice is. Career, marriage, family, children, that new toy, house, travel, sex, romance, beauty, a stamp on your passport, whatever it is, a PhD, accolade in your career, whatever it is. 
but ultimately nothing in this life apart from God. And we say this so often, it is cliche, but it's true. Nothing in this life apart from God can ever satisfy your desire because desire is infinite and only God is the solution to that problem. So we end up in this chronic state of restlessness at best or worse, frustration, anger, angst, disappointment, disillusionment, all of that just railing against our life, which ironically for most of us leads to a life of hurry, busyness, overload, shopping, materialism, careerism, a life of more, which in turn makes us even more restless. It's gas on the fire. Now, then, to make a bad problem worse, and I'm just here to give you a pat on the back tonight, (laughs) this is exacerbated by our cultural moment of digital marketing from a society built around accumulation and accomplishment. They say we see upwards of 4,000 advertisements a day. All of them are designed, some of you work in this industry, you know behind the curtain, you know what it's about, are designed to stoke the fire of desire in our belly. Buy this, do this, eat this, drink this, have this, be this, own this, go here, go there. Social media, of course, just takes this problem to a whole new level as we live under a barrage of images, not just from the advertising wing of whatever product company, but from the rich and the famous, as well as just from our family and friends who, with good intention, curate the best moments of their life as we do ours and unintentionally play to one of the core sins of the human condition that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that of envy. But advertising in particular is literally an attempt to monetize our restlessness. Worth Your Time is this documentary, Century of Self, from the BBC. Anybody watch that yet? It's on YouTube right now for free. Feel free to check it out. It tells the story of the rise of modern advertising after the World Wars and how the power brokers of Washington, D.C. and New York set out to repurpose now thousands of empty factories with tens of thousands of workers with nothing to do. And to do that, the goal was to repurpose our economy from a needs economy to a wants economy. Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers famously said this in 1927, quote, We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. This is the beginning of the business idea that we now know as planned obsolescence or why we want a new iPhone every single September. Fast forward, at least I do. Is that just me? Dang, okay. (laughs) Fast forward to 2019 and our economy is literally built on people spending money they don't have on things they don't need. We now spend, the most conservative estimate I've read is twice, some put the number at upwards of 10 times, what we spent in 1945 on goods and services per person after you adjust for inflation. Twice as many cars or 10 times as many cars, clothing, water bottles, vacations to wherever, donuts, time out, square footage, all of it. There is, my point is just this, there is a multi-billion dollar marketing industry with direct access to your heart through the little computer in your front right pocket 
that is all designed on purpose to fan into flames your desire and make money off of your restlessness. Not to mention that we live in what the Korean-German philosopher Byung Chul Han calls an achievement society, where it is all about what you achieve with your life, especially if you're in a city, especially if you're educated, especially if you are at all upwardly mobile. This in particular is just a temptation for you. All that to say, here's my point. When our innate human restlessness collides with the digital age and a culture of accomplishment and accumulation, the result is an epidemic of emotional unhealth and spiritual death. Psychologists are now diagnosing people with hurry sickness, with psychology today defines as a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. The phrase hurry sickness was coined by Meyer Friedman, who was a cardiologist in the 1950s, was the first one to connect the dots between chronic stress and heart disease. He defined it as, quote, a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Some of you are like, wait, isn't that just life? (laughs) Yes, it is now. Doctors are calling this a Western disease. Something about the modern Western world is spiritually forming our souls. Remember, we've done work on this. Spiritual formation is not just a Jesus thing. It is a human thing. You are being spiritually formed, whether you want it or not. The question is by what or by whom. Something about our city is spiritually forming our souls into a condition of hurry and overload and busyness and chronic stress and, in one word, restlessness that is toxic. My friend A.J. Swoboda, who is just a mile away on the other side of the river, will be here in a few weeks to teach from his book, The Subversive Sabbath, which is on our recommended reading. He writes this, Our time-saving devices... Technological conveniences and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. The result is a hollow culture that, in Paul's words, is ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Our bodies wear ragged. Our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. We have become, perhaps, the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. How you feeling? Just here to cheer you up tonight. <laughs> no, seriously, brothers and sisters, family, I have gospel for you. I have good news for you. Into this human condition of restlessness, exacerbated by your phone in 2019, Jesus of Nazareth comes to offer you rest. Not just for your body, you can get that from a prescription and a pill, but for your soul. Read with me Matthew chapter 11, just the end, 28. Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, that can be translated exhausted or stressed out, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Matthew 11. Are you tired? Anybody in the room tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out in religion? I'm a pastor. That's a bit of an occupational hazard. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. However you translate Jesus' invitation, it's clear that his way, his vision for how you and I are to live in God's kingdom is grounded in rest. I recently put John 15 to memory with my community in last fall's practice, the Scripture Memory Week. And, you know, John 15, famous teaching of Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Beautiful. And it's just, it's in my mind's eye right now every single day. And I just keep thinking about it. Jesus' word picture for how we are to bear fruit, which in the Gospel of John is defined as love, joy, and peace. And then later in the New Testament is expanded to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. His word picture for how we are to grow that in the soil of our life is not of ambition, but of abiding. Not of like working your tail off and just striving to just be more loving and be more joyful and be more peaceful, but rather of resting in the Father's presence. This is the way for Jesus to bear the fruit of love and joy and peace. If we break off that restful connection to the Father, or in his word picture, the vine, whether it is through sin or full-on unbelief or just through hurry and busyness and the phone and too much entertainment and a crazy schedule. Either way, the result is the same. You are cut off from God and you bear no fruit. In the place of love, joy, and peace is burnout, compromise, defeat, anger, sadness, etc. And that is obviously not Jesus' heart for you. I mean, think about it. Jesus is not glorified by unhappy, exhausted people. You ever met somebody who's just like way over the top, stressed out, and just like kind of like in and out of sleep in a conversation with them and thought to yourself, man, I just really want what they have. <laughs> you know, no, not at all. This is from my friend John Tyson in New York who's coming out in the spring to teach on sexuality, and I love this. If you imagine your soul as kind of like the power bar on your phone, and 100% of rest, like full to the top, is, you know, what Jesus calls life to the full. It's like you are just brimming over with love and joy and peace and just generosity and just full attention to the moment, to God all around you, to the people in front of you. You're just at ease in your own body, and your own life, a real sense of life is hard, but it is still good, right? That's life to the full. Most of us don't rest 
and, and say 0% is suicide or death or just like out on the couch for weeks at a time, right? Most of us don't rest until we get way down to 20 or 10%. We don't rest until we have to. And then most of us don't rest very well. We confuse rest with entertainment or distraction. And most of us don't rest very long. So most of the time we just get back up to, I don't know, solvent. We just get enough rest to, okay, I can show up for work tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Maybe if I'm lucky, drinks after with Bob or whatever. Bob, where did that come from? But okay, if you're here, Bob, fantastic. Robbie, Robbie, um, whatever. Normally we just get, my point is we just get back to like management level. What do we miss between management level and rest all the way? What we miss out on is life to the full. What we miss off in that margin is love, is a joyful, happy, grateful life, a sense of peace and calm and repose from your heart out, a sense of generosity and attention and gratitude and contentment and wisdom and just contemplative just real skill to live that comes from living in the quiet with God, we miss out on all the best stuff that Jesus has for us. All the best stuff comes when you're at 90% plus. My point is, without rest and without lots of it, we simply cannot be the people that Jesus has in mind. We cannot live the life that Jesus has on offer. This is why rest is essential to apprenticeship to Jesus. Do you view rest? Do you view Sabbath? Do you view how many hours a night you sleep? Do you view margin as essential components in your life with Jesus? Or is that something separate? Is that from a self-help podcast or weird people that aren't type A like you and don't get a 4.0 or whatever? Or do you view it as central to your apprenticeship to Jesus. Here is why I would argue one of many reasons it's central. Jesus said the greatest commandment in all of the library of Scripture in the universe is, in one word, to love. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In my experience, and this could just be my personality, I'm introverted, I'm a bit high-strung, this could just be me, I don't think it is, but vet this. 80% of loving well is just being emotionally healthy and spiritually awake. In my experience, again, most of you don't have children yet. I have three, chaos monster. And fantastic chaos monster. Um, If I get up tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. and I fast and I pray and I speak in tongues naked on the roof asking God for a revival (laughs) and I pray the exam and I read all the way to Leviticus and I... I memorize scripture and I do all this stuff, all the Jesus stuff. And then I walk out of my little home study and there's Moses with our new dog. We have a dog. And he's just walking in after the morning walk and dragging mud into our house. And I just instantly go ballistic. Like I just all, it's like three hours of Jesus and all of a sudden I'm just Satan. Like just, how could you? How many times do I have to tell you? The poor kid's 10, right? And it's like mud, it's organ, right? Um, Hence dog, ah, whole other thing. But (laughs) when I'm rested, you catch me at the end of the Sabbath after just plenty of sleep, 
plenty of time in the quiet, which I need a lot of, time to just recenter, pray, and journal, and hear from God, and get his vantage point on my life at this moment, time with my family, with my friends, soul connection with my wife, time one-on-one with my children, just you catch me then, I'm at my best self, and honestly, loving is pretty easy. Not that like I kill it, but I'm pretty good at it. (laughs) When I'm rested, when I'm not rested, it doesn't matter how much I pray, how, much, how many times I read through the Bible in a year. I only do it five or six times most years, but whatever it is, <laughs> it doesn't matter how much scripture I memorize, how many Bible studies I go to, how much I podcast, how often. I, I'm at church three times every single week, right? Take that. <laughs> doesn't matter. My point is, emotional health matters not just because we're happier, but because we're more loving. We're more joyful, and we're more at peace with God. Now, again, that could just be me. I don't think it is. When I do not rest, I don't love well. When I do rest, love comes out of my life, almost like Jesus said it would, bear much fruit. So, all that to say, is there a practice from the life and the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth to mitigate against this cancerous restlessness of our condition and our culture and to tap into his rest for our soul? The answer is, of course, heck yes. There are many. At the top of the list is Sabbath. Notice in your Bible that the very next line after, you know, you will find rest for your souls, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, that next line, and if, you're, if you have been around the Bible a little bit, you know that the chapter breaks were all added later and are not there in the original Greek. The very next line is not one, but two stories about the Sabbath. It's not a coincidence. The biographer Matthew has that for you, the reader, to connect the dots between Jesus' open invite, rest for your souls. What's next? Two stories about the Sabbath. Rest for your souls and the Sabbath go together. Now, the word Sabbath is from the Hebrew Shabbat. Can you say that? Well done. The word literally means to stop. That's all it means. The Sabbath is a day to stop. Stop working. More than that, stop wanting. More than that, stop worrying. Just stop and rest. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. Think of the pictures that come to us through lifestyle advertising. From a new throw for your bed or a picture frame or a bathrobe, or a new set of towels, or a tray for wine and cheese, or a lamp, or a table, or a little bonnet for your boy or girl, I'm not sure, or a couch for your dog, whatever it is. (laughs) Almost all of these images are images of Sabbath, of stopping. Unless the advertisement is for a car or hard alcohol, Nine times out of ten, just pay attention, it's almost always an image of Sabbath. It's an image of stopping. Now, we'll talk more about this in a few weeks, but the irony is that the marketing wing of Kinfolk or Snowy or Blue Dot, they know that you ache for this and you don't have it. They know that you look at that couple in bed, and of course they're gorgeous and all of that stuff, but whatever, and you think, oh, breakfast in bed with that cool little walnut tray (laughs) and the thread count on the sheet and the 
candle with the essential oil that's soy-based or whatever. Like, <laughs> ah, they know you're tired, you're stressed out, you're busy, you're on. You don't have this and you ache for it. And guess what? Here's the irony. They offer to sell it to you. <laughs> but the crazy part is, do you need to pay $99.99 for a new bathrobe in order to Sabbath? No, Tammy just got me one for Christmas. Let me tell you, I'm 64 all of a sudden, and it is glorious. <laughs> it is glorious. Oh, the bathrobe life. Hashtag that. But do you need a organic Canadian down comforter to Sabbath? Yes. Okay, that one. Yes. <laughs> Do you need the candle with essential oils? No, you don't need any. It's all great stuff. You don't need any of it. You don't need to buy anything. You don't need to look like a model. You don't need to reinvent your life. You don't need to hire an interior designer. You just, you don't need to be rich. You don't need to be cool. You just need to Sabbath. You just need to stop. This is an ancient practice long before the invention of the Lifestyle magazine that goes all the way back. It actually predates Jesus of Nazareth. It actually predates Israel. Well, next week, we'll lay out a biblical theology of the Sabbath. You know where it starts? It does not start in the Ten Commandments. It does not start with Israel. It starts on day seven of creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. It predates Cain and Abel. This is an ancient practice. It is not new, but tragically, it is new to many of us. I grew up in the church. It was not even remotely on my radar until my mid-20s. Again, our friend AJ writes this, Sabbath has been largely forgotten by the church, which has uncritically mimicked the rhythms of the industrial and success-obsessed West. The result Our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. Notice, vital elements of Christian discipleship. It is not as though we do not love God. We love God deeply. We just don't know how to sit with God anymore. It makes sense that commandment number four of the ten, and we'll read it next week, is remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Why? Because we are prone to amnesia. We forget, and often we forget the things that matter the most. I would argue this is an ancient practice from the way of Jesus and even from before, from creation itself, that we desperately need to remember, especially now in our cultural moment. Now, before we talk about a few kind of steps to begin. There's just one more key idea that you need to get. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, to the right. And again, this Sunday is just kind of high-level, 30,000-feet overview of the practice for the next few months. Hebrews chapter 4. I don't normally um, read from Hebrews, not because it's anything less than spectacular, but because if you're not a first-century Jew, it's really complex. So the next, we'll read a few paragraphs. If at any point you're lost, don't stress at all. Just keep reading, and the gist is clear by the end, okay? Hebrews chapter 4, table of contents at the beginning of your Bible, if you don't know where that is, but it's very far to the right. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, 
Right? Think of Jesus' promise. Come to me, rest for your souls. That is on offer to all of you. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Remember, he's writing to the church, not to a city. He's writing to you and to me. And he's saying, listen, watch out. Make sure you're careful that none of you in the church miss out on this promise of rest. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they, in context the Hebrews in the wilderness, did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. In context, they did not go into the promised land. He's saying, it's one thing for you to hear about the rest that Jesus has on offer for you. It's a whole other thing for you to obey and experience the rest that he has for you. And he's saying, don't be like the Hebrews who had a path forward into this rest and were always on the outside of it, on the wrong side of Jordan. Now, we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. This is a quote from Psalm 95. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day of the Sabbath in these words. Next is a quote from Genesis 2. If you ever don't know where Scripture is in the Bible, that should make you feel better right there. One of the authors doesn't know where it's at. And it's from Genesis, all right? On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest. Notice, there it is again, some. Not all of you in this room will experience this rest. All of you can. The odds are not all of you will. Since it still stands, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, if you know that story, God again sent a certain day, calling it today, the patience of God, a second chance, a third, a thousandth. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David. As in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For, some of you are like, I'm so lost. Just we're almost to the end. For if Joshua had given them rest in the promised land, God would not have spoken later, in Psalm 95, about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, or that can be translated labor or toil, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Now, there's a lot here we don't have time for. This is like exegetical rabbi ninja stuff, okay? Don't have time. This is basically him teaching or her teaching on Um, A story from Genesis 2 about the Sabbath, the story from Deuteronomy about the Exodus, and all through this vantage point of Psalm 95, a poem. It's a long story, but the point of it is, for the writer here, Sabbath is more than just a day. It is a way of being in the world. It is a spirit of restfulness that comes from living in the Father's loving presence all week long. You could frame it like this. Restfulness is margin over busyness. It is a life of slow, presence to the moment over a life of hurry. It's quiet over noise. 
to deep relationships with family, friends, community over isolation and individualism. It's time alone over crowds. It's delight over distraction on your phone or whatever. It's enjoyment over envy of what he has or she has or they have. It's clarity about who you are, what you're made to do, what you're not made to do over confusion and the fog and the tyranny of the urgent. It's gratitude. I can't believe this is my life. Thank you. Over greed and the lust for more. It's contentment. I'm okay with my life how it is. More than okay, I'm good. Over discontentment, that nagging sense of, ah, I need more. It's working, but it's working from love, from a sense of your self-worth grounded in God's love. Your identity is who you are loved by, not what you do or what you have or how cool you are or what other people think of you, rather than working for love. It's working as contribution, just to play your small part in the human story out of the generosity of your heart and your identity and your calling, rather than work as accomplishment and accumulation. And above all, it is a life of trust in God over against its opposite, which is not doubt, but is anxiety. Now, of course, the question here is which list best describes you, right? Do you resonate more with, man, I'm just so busy and in a hurry all the time and just all the noise of life and like I'm around people all the time, but I just feel so alone and just distraction. Like, what, squirrel? And like envy, I just, ah, oh, I wish I had her life or his life. And I'm not really exactly sure what I'm doing with my life. And I just want more of this or that. And I just, ah, oh, I don't feel like this is enough and I'm stressed. Or is it, man, how are you doing? Well, you know, if I just had one word to describe my life, margin. <laughs> just amazing. Just, I'm like a click above like, <clears throat> lazy, but I love my life. So good. I just feel present. I'm like, I get out of, you know, rhythm every day. I mess up a little bit, but overall, I just feel present to the moment, to each day. I receive it as a gift. I just have so many deep relationships with family and friends, and I do life in community, but yet I just real, really feel comfortable alone with God, and I more and more crave just the quiet with God alone, which is weird for my personality, but I just love to hear from God. I just have this sense of gratitude more and more each day I wake up and I just find myself saying thank you first thing. I just, I feel really content, you know? I used to always feel like my life is out there and more and more I feel like, no, it's right here. And I just trust God for the stuff that's really hard. Like I make it sound a little idealistic right now, but my point is, which one do you resonate with? Really, my point here is guilt and shame. But, um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Not at all. My point is, most of us, I'm guessing, resonate more with restlessness than we do with restfulness. Ronald Rollheiser, my favorite Catholic writer, has it like this. We are a restless people. Restlessness is the opposite of being restful. Restfulness is one of the most primal cravings human beings have. We crave rest to the point where we identify it with heaven. Grant us eternal rest. <laughs> Let me die so I can finally take a day off. <laughs> Translation. Today, 
as our lives grow more pressured, as we grow more tired, as we begin to feel burned out, we fantasize more about restfulness. We imagine a peaceful, quiet place. We imagine the Kinfolk magazine scene. We see ourselves walking by a lake, watching a peaceful sunset, smoking a pipe and a rocker by the fireplace. But even in those images, we make restfulness yet another activity, something we do. Then we return to normal life. True restfulness, though, is a form of awareness, a way of being in life. It is living ordinary life with a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. We are restful when ordinary life is enough. Is your ordinary life enough? Today, not when you graduate, not when you get into the new apartment, not when you figure out your major, today is your ordinary life enough. One of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus, especially in our day and age, is to find the goodness of God in our actual life today, not in our idealized life tomorrow, but our actual life today. Trust me, your life, no matter how hard it is, is full of goodness. It's full of the love of God. It's full of restfulness that is on offer for you. But notice the irony of Hebrews, that last line, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Did you pick up on that? Work your tail off, my translation, Work really hard, make every, do everything in your power to enter that rest, to live from the spirit of restfulness. Honestly, many people don't Sabbath simply because, with all due respect, they are too lazy or because it's just too much work. It takes preparation. It takes a plan to Sabbath, especially if you adopt a number of the best practices that come to us from the tradition that are not a to-do list. There's no rule or anything like that, just best practices such as turn off your phone for a day and things like that. There is a discipline to the Sabbath that is really hard for a lot of us. But Sabbath is the primary discipline by which we cultivate the spirit of restfulness in our life as a whole. It's like Sabbath is to restfulness what a you know, soccer practice is to a match on the weekend or what band practice is to a show on Friday night. It is how we practice for the best moments of our life as a whole. Walter Brueggemann has this great line, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. I love that. Some people take this idea of a spirit of restfulness and Hebrews 4 in particular, and use it to justify not practicing the Sabbath? Okay. I would just say, as a general rule, beware of any teaching in the church that wants to allegorize the literal and literalize the allegorical. So when you read a story about a talking snake and people want to die on the hill that there literally was a talking snake, okay, just be a little wary. doesn't mean it's wrong, just be a little wary. And... When you read a story about Jesus healing on the Sabbath and people want to make it about how, you know, we have a spirit of rest because we're loved. It's not about earning God's favor. It's about what Christ has done. And then be a workaholic for Jesus who's just on their phone all the time. Be really wary of that too. Sabbath is more than a day, but it is not less. 
So this week, we begin our winter practice of the Sabbath. Some of you are well down this road. Others of you have no idea, but you're down with the like breakfast in bed thing. And this is <laughs> ground zero, right? Which is great. It's all up on practicingtheway.org slash Sabbath. Week one is very simple. It's just to set a time to Sabbath and give it a test run. Start where you're at. If you feel like a whole day is too much or your weekend week schedule is sporadic or whatever, just, okay, start where you're at. Start with a half day. I really think you need to work up to a full day, but start. If you start with three hours, four hours, great. Start where you're at. If at all possible, get into a rhythm. There are three basic options. The traditional Sabbath is from 20 minutes before sundown on Friday night to late Saturday afternoon, the same time. The Lord's Day Sabbath is the other option, which is what most Christians practice, where you begin either Saturday night or first thing Sunday morning, and then you either worship on Sunday morning or for us here on Sunday evening to end the Sabbath. And then there's the midweek Sabbath, where if you have a sporadic schedule, you work on the weekends or whatever, you Sabbath on Wednesday or whatever day it is for you. I don't think there's a right. I don't think there's a wrong. I think all three are great. My family, because, only because Sunday for me is a marathon work day, we Sabbath Friday night through Saturday evening. And, but I'm guessing for most of you, Sunday is by far the best day. For those of you thinking, what should I do on the day? Well, first off, you're type A. Just calm down. It's not about, there's no to-do list. There's no like, check, 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 check. There's no like thing on your wall or whatever. It's a day for stopping. You're like, okay, literally doing nothing. Well, in the best practices, again, none of this, there's no rule here. There are in all the literature, if you talk to anybody who's a bit of a guru on Sabbath practice, there are essentially 10 best practices for a Sabbath. And it's the lighting of candles and prayers of blessing. It's feasting. Like, you can't Sabbath and do keto or gluten-free. This just doesn't work. Like we just rebuke that spirit in the name of Jesus, all right? You, you need all in. Bread, wine, fat, everything, right? Carb overload. There's um, the reading of scripture or of poetry or of liturgy or of spiritual truth. There's singing Lovemaking and the Talmud and the section on marriage is actually a command for couples to make love every single Sabbath night. Some of you married couples are just like, I'm just, okay, Sabbath, all right. <laughs> Warm after this, you're like, sweetheart, it's Sabbath. <laughs> right? Okay. Walking is a beautiful, just an afternoon stroll. Napping is a key best practice. In Yiddish, it's called the Sabbath slough. I just like that, schluss. It's just fun to say. The Sabbath nap is what that means in Yiddish. A nap is a great way to place your trust in God with all of your body. My lovely wife will literally sleep in till 9 or 10 on Saturday morning, and then by 2, she's like, nap time, honey. See you in a little bit, right? Time with family and close friends, particular for those of you that are more extroverted, but for all of us. Time alone in the quiet is a key part of it. Gratitude, it's really a day to cultivate gratitude, to thank God for what you have, rather than think about and focus and buy and shop and pursue what you do not have. My point is, and again, this is not, I hesitate to put that up, this is not a to-do list. Like, if that's your personality, erase it. It's not a right way, there's not a wrong way, and we'll talk more about the heart behind it next week. It's just basically a day to stop, to rest, and to delight 
first and foremost in God, and then in your life with God in His world. Now, for those of you that are on the fence, that are kind of just right now like running through the, I'm the exception to the rule, or here's why not, or here's why, that's fine. This is all invitation. Everything from Jesus, basic morality is a command. Maturity and human flourishing is all invitational. Ten commandments, like, that's not an optional. Don't murder people. Right? You do that or commit adultery or lie. You do that and our elders will talk to you. We'll come around you as a community. Basic morality is commanded in the Bible and in the way of Jesus. Maturity, health, growth, wisdom, flourishing, love, all of it's open invite. You have to decide if you're up for it. If you're not up for it or you're not sure, I would just ask honestly, how is your soul? As you think about 2018, as you look back on the year, how was it? And not just like, did you kill it at school or in your job, but how is, did, you, did your soul grow? I don't mean your personal improvement project. I mean your soul. Did you grow and mature? Think of Jesus' triumvirate that is the core of the kingdom of God, love, joy, and peace. Are you a more loving person than you were a year ago? Are you more joyful and happy and full of gratitude and appreciation than you were last January? Are you more at peace? Not like Zen perfect, you never get stressed ever, but just more at peace than you were last January. Did you live for the most part in connection to the loving presence of the Father? Or did you live large chunks of the year in a hurry, stressed out, not aware of God and just not your best self? If so, Trying harder in 2019 is not going to fix the underlying problem, nor is a gym membership. I'm all for it. Fantastic. It's just not going to fix the underlying problem. Resting the Sabbath just might. Now, for those of you who are in, I know that's most of you, um, just a few things to remember as we begin this practice, and we have plenty of time all through the winter. One, we'll talk a lot over the next month about the how-to of Sabbath, such as that list of best practices. Please note, I just need to say this over and over. None of these are rules to obey. There's no legalism here. These are simply best practices, which I find very helpful. Some of them do feel like disciplines. We will lobby hard for you to take a day off from technology. Do you have to do that? No. Is there a command in the New Testament? No, it's a little bit before the iPhone, right? We will lobby hard for you to do that, and that's a discipline to do that. And there's a sense of, ah, you have to say no to something, But always remember, with every discipline, it is to say yes to something even better. When you say no to something you want, it's to say yes to something you want even more. So every discipline from the Sabbath, no work or don't catch up on email or don't shop or whatever it is we talk about, none of it's rules. It's all best practices. And it's to say no to say yes to the Father's presence, to a more loving you, a more joyful you, a more at peace you. Secondly, Remember the J-curve? We've done work on this before. Learning theorists talk about the J-curve. Basic interpretation. When you begin any new skill, Jesus or otherwise, most of us normally get worse before we get better. I remember when I um, began to play guitar. I think I was, I don't know, 14 years old or something. I'm dating myself here, but can you imagine learning to play the guitar without YouTube? It was horrible. You had to actually go to another human being and say, teach me a little ditty. We used that word back in the day. Teach me a riff, right? Teach me a chord. You had to actually go to a human being, sit on a couch with them in person, 
and learn something from them. It's just horrible. But, um, <laughs> but I remember when you first start to play guitar, your natural intuition is when you pick, like when you're learning a riff or whatever, you pick all down, like down, 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 down. Actually, how you're supposed to play guitar is down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, which is quite a bit harder, but in the, in the long run means you go twice as fast and you make less mistakes. And so nobody told me that. There was no YouTube, whatever. Year or so into guitar, I figure out, oh, wow, like I'm, I'm doing this wrong. So I have to stop and restart my skill down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. And I remember for about two or three months, it was painful because I thought I was pretty good and I just got so bad. And all of these little riffs that before I could play pretty good, now I'm slow, I'm clumsy, I would miss a note. But after several months of practice and then years, I became mediocre. It was pretty (laughs) fantastic. My point is, like, every time I think about a practice from the way of Jesus or I try a new, you know, contemplative prayer thing or whatever it is, it feels like that to me. It feels like, ah, and then I get worse before I get better. Especially, we've done enough work around Sabbath in the past in our church, and some of you are new to it, but if you've been around for a while, that a lot of us kind of have, like Bethany was telling me, our Bridgetown community coined a new phrase, Sabbath-ish. Only a Portlander would put ish at the end of Sabbath. I love it. Um, a lot of us are kind of in that spot of Sabbath-ish. Like we kind of, oh yeah, it was great Sabbath-ish. You know, I went shopping in the morning. It was great. And then watched a movie while I folded laundry and then answered some emails and was on Instagram. It was just great. And then I like took a 20-minute nap. It was awesome. It was Sabbath. Like, oh, Sabbath-ish, okay? <laughs> so if you're at that spot, again, no guilt, sir. That's just where a lot of us honestly are. Don't be surprised if as you really start to take it seriously, you feel awkward, Don't be surprised if you show up on Sabbath and you feel depression or you feel anxiety. Actually, that's a really good thing. That's your real life catching up with you for you to deal with it. That's a whole other sermon that Bethany will give in a few weeks. Um, Don't be surprised if you just feel a little awkward. It's totally normal. It's healthy even, and it's okay. Finally, I would just say, give it time. This took, honestly, this might discourage you, but this took my wife and I years to figure out. Again, I grew up in a church tradition that said nothing about the Sabbath, good or bad. And I thought of Sabbath as like a weird Jewish thing or for Seventh-day Adventists. I'm not sure who they are, but vegetarian, cultist, whatever, something like that. And I, I can't say that. Not, not as, that was just, I had no frame of reference for the Sabbath at all. Um, we had a high value for the Lord's Day. My dad, uh, one of, my dad was amazing. We, would, we were at church every single day. Sunday, no matter what, when we were on vacation. My dad texted me this morning. He's on a romantic getaway with my wife down. Oh, my, sorry. No, oh my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That was so bad. Edit that with my mom. With my mom. Oh, that's, that's so Corinthians 5. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. I don't normally get embarrassed. That was really bad. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. A romantic getaway with my mom down in Northern California. And he's driving over to Carmel, which is where their honeymoon was. And he texted me this morning, Oh, I just decided this morning we went to Menlo Park and I got to meet your mentor, John Orberg. What a wonderful guy. And I thought, you're on vacation and you went to church? 
Like, that's so Christian of you. It's amazing. <laughs> but that's my dad. Like, we would never miss a Sunday. So my point is, there's a high value for the Lord's Day, but it was not really a Sabbath. It was a marathon day. He worked at one of the first mega churches on the West Coast. We were at church all day long on Sunday. There was Sunday school like for grown-up people back in the day, and then a whole other church service, and then there was night church service. And at the end, it was wonderful, but we were dead tired. And so some of you know, I just grew up, and that workaholic in the name of Jesus kind of culture was all I ever knew. Planted this church about 15 years ago, and some of you know a few years in, I just burned out, and I burned out bad. And right in that time period of my life, I came across this little book, The Sabbath, by Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's not even a follower of Jesus, but he's just such a wise soul. Beautiful little literary masterpiece from half a century ago. And I read it, and then I literally reread it, and then I think I reread it again. It's a short little read. And then I put it on my bedside table, and it sat there for about five years. And I would read it a little bit before bed. I would read it every single Sabbath morning, just a few chapters out of it. It was my first exposure to this idea of Sabbath. And then we began to practice it. And it was in fits and in starts. I was more into it at first than my wife because I'm just more godly. And um, no, not at all, because I'm a, a rule follower and my wife is high P on the Myers-Briggs, very spontaneous, wonderful soul in the moment, late for everything, doesn't plan in advance at all. Um, so, so she was just not into it. It just felt like rules and regulations to her and more work to grocery shop and prep and do all the stuff ahead of time. So it was a while before we were on the same page But once we started to get into the rhythm, it has become now, I think we're 13 or so years into the practice, honestly, one of, if not the most important of all of the practices of Jesus in our life, it has become the emotional and the spiritual anchor point for our life. I cannot tell you. Friday night, we do Sabbath with our kids, and after Sabbath dinner, we have a cast iron skillet and we make one giant cookie in it and then after it comes out of the oven we dump a whole tub of ice cream on top and we just all eat like just all out of the skillet it's awesome it's like a picture of unity and it's just lots of sugar and chocolate it's so good and as we eat the cookie we go around the table and we just do our highlight of the week as a family and i feel like a broken record nine times out of ten my highlight of the week is sabbath what's the highlight of your week oh last sabbath was amazing like something really good has to happen to out, to bump out Sabbath. I find myself on Tuesday or Wednesday of the week saying, I can do this because I know the Sabbath is coming. I find myself on Sunday or Monday thinking to myself, I can do this because I just finished the Sabbath. It has become not just our anchor point for happiness, but for spiritual life with Jesus. I come out of each Sabbath with clarity, with rest, with connection to the Spirit of God, rooted and grounded in the truth of Jesus. And I look forward to this all week long. And I'm just saying, I want this for you. I want it for me. I actually got way out of whack this last year. Um, I hit vacation. I literally got sick on the first day of my vacation, spent most of it in bed, and it was still great. I was that tired. But, and this was with We're really consistent about the Sabbath. But Sabbath will teach you not just about one day of your life, but about all seven days of your week. And so honestly, like just in all repentance, I worked too much last year. Too much travel, too much work, too much church, too much busyness. I have a lot of responsibility with my family right now and just with my own soul. I'm not emotionally as tough as I wish I was. I have a low capacity emotionally. I need a lot of rest. 
I need a lot of time. I need a lot of quiet. And so I got out of sync last year. And I begin this year with a little bit of trepidation, but a lot of anticipation for a year of rest. We're coming out of this fall practice of fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, which was emotionally and spiritually just a war for me, at least, and I think for a lot of us in our life. And as I think about it, rest is a weapon. Rest is, you want to fight Satan? You want to fight your flesh? You want to fight the world? Sabbath, take that, (laughs) Satan, right? Seriously, rest is a weapon. It's really hard to tempt people that are healthy, happy, and well-rested. Really easy to tempt people that are tired and stressed out. Really easy. Really easy. Willard used to say, we must arrange our life so that sin no longer looks good to us. The best way I know how to do that is to rest in the loving presence of the Father. So as we go into this year, it feels really good to me to move from fighting to resting. And actually, it's two sides of the same coin. It's a lot on our docket for the year ahead, this building, our practices, alpha, justice, all the ongoing outrage and injustice and pain of our society. What would it look like to move into this year, not with a rally cry to, you know, take over the city for God or whatever. He was a pacifist. Don't use that language. Um, But rather to rest our way into this new year. To live from a spirit of restfulness. Can you imagine what we, our small little community, what we would offer this city if we were the people in a cultural moment of outrage and anger and confusion and doubt and secularism and a failing political system? What if we were the people of gratitude, ease, appreciation, peace, and prayer? What if we were the people that you ran into on a Saturday? How are you? Just got out of my bathrobe. It's 3 p.m. Did I say Tammy got me a bathrobe for Christmas? It's fantastic. What if we were the people at peace in our own body, at peace in our own soul? What a gift we would be to each other and to our city. This is what Jesus has on offer. Come to me, all you are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's stand together and pray.